Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. He's like a superhero without the costume. This is The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. That nudity itself is still big news in America is uh, good for business, but also says a great deal about how unsophisticated mm. we are in terms of sex. Voice of Hugh Hefner, who uh, died at 91 years of age a couple of days ago, and Hugh Hefner's impact on society, certainly on the the lifestyle in North America in the 60s and from the 60s on forward was considerable. In the 50s as well, I suppose, too, because that's when the initial Playboy magazine was published in the 1950s with the first centerfold being Marilyn Monroe. And, and I think it was Marilyn Monroe. And uh, subsequently, of course, Playboy magazine became the subject of a great deal of conversation and discussion debate. And uh, I remember as a high school kid, uh, you know, my classmates would bring in uh, a Playboy magazine that they'd, I guess, gotten from their dads. And uh, everybody would gather around and we'd read the articles. I was, it was always, it was a great, it was such a tremendous fascination with Playboy magazine because it, it represented such a change in anything people were accustomed to. Dr. Bob Thompson, Robert Thompson, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He's the director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at the University of Syracuse, and he's one of the world's leaders on the issue of pop culture. Bob, thank you for taking the time. And did I even semi-coherently explain what Hugh Hefner accomplished uh, in, in the 50s and then going forward in the 60s and, and particularly the 70s and into the 80s? Yeah, you did. I mean, he was a major force in uh, the culture for the last half of the uh, 20th century, and some of it good. Uh, uh, civil rights, the First Amendment, uh, uh, one of the cable networks was just doing a uh, big thing about he uh, gave Dick Gregory, the uh, uh, recently um, deceased black comic, one of his first breaks. Uh, he had lots of uh, integration of his uh, entertainment uh, uh, at his clubs. And, of course, that magazine um, published some extraordinarily good fiction and really important interviews. Martin Luther King, as early as 1965. Right. Um, the list of uh, uh, great writers is uh, take us all day to a uh, uh, list, including women. Uh, uh, um, Nadine Gordimer, Joyce Carol Oates, Margaret Atwood. Um, but we can never forget that when you turn the page from one of those interviews, you turn the page from some of that fiction, you saw pictures of naked women. And after Dick Gregory uh, uh, or Bill Cosby got finished performing at the Playboy Club, you would be served by a Playboy bunny. And by the way, the bodies of those people in the magazine and the bunnies that were serving you your drinks were all pretty much the same kind of body. Yeah, and tell me this. Do men who are of a certain vintage, who were kids or in their mid-teens, 
when Playboy magazine really hit its stride in the late 50s and early 60s, is there still a degree of embarrassment or reluctance to talk about it? Because it, it, it was something, it was a magazine everybody wanted to, to have uh, if you were that age, but nobody really wanted to admit to having. I don't well, know if I'll I'm even telling the truth. I'll my own personal <laughs> experience with the magazine. I was born in 1959. Yeah. I did not have a father who uh, had them in the house, so I never uh, 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 saw the magazine, except I did, of course, see the covers. They were very prominently displayed in uh, uh, very polite uh, you know, grocery stores uh, uh, and all that kind of thing. So I never saw that magazine at first because uh, I didn't uh, have the opportunity to do so as a kid. And then, as I became an adult, uh, yeah, I, I was—I uh, didn't want to buy it uh, uh, because there was a sense that you were supporting something that you thought was uh, 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 was not good. I needed when I was doing some research on uh, Hill Street Blues for one of my books. Playboy magazine did a spectacular interview with the entire cast of that um, series. Uh, so I went to Northwestern University's library and had to sign a whole bunch of different things to finally get uh, the opportunity to um, uh, to look at that. And I will say with all honesty, I actually checked out that uh, uh, magazine, Xeroxed that interview, and then uh, uh, and then returned it. And then, oh, one more I just remembered. <clears throat> Remember um, who wants to marry a multimillionaire? Yes. Darva Conger, a big controversy about that, uh, shortly after that happened, did an interview, uh, uh, or not an interview, she did a, 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 a pictorial with Playboy. And I was doing a lot of research about that show and talking a lot about it, and I felt it was that I needed to see that. And I didn't want to go into a convenience store to buy it, so I actually got one of my colleagues to go get it for me. <laughs> Yeah, because I was just thinking so as hopefully I... Hopefully that answers your question. Well, I think so, because after I asked my question, I realized I was actually in contradiction with myself, because I remember when, uh, if I go back to grade 8, grade 9, grade 10, and one of the guys in class would bring in a copy of Playboy magazine, and in the day of the Internet where you can see pretty much anything you want to see just by turning your phone on... It wasn't like that in those days. So some kid oh, would bring in wasn't. no. Some kid would bring in Playboy magazine, and a group of guys would, would would gather around, and another group of guys refused to look at the magazine. So, and that may tell you a whole lot about yeah. the legacy of Hugh Hefner. He, yeah. he did a lot of important things, and we've talked about those uh, a little bit already, but. The fact that you had a bunch of kids gathered around looking at uh, pictures of naked women, which is kind of the epitome of uh, objectifying women, and I've heard his argument that he was trying to get us away from our Puritan uh, attitudes about sex, and he was trying to uh, demonstrate that women could enjoy sex as much as men do, and those are all um, uh, fine arguments, but... There is something a little bit creepy about all those guys gathering around to look at those pictures, and you have to admire the ones who, uh, you know, who decided not to, because among those who decided not to were probably several who would have been more than happy to do so. I think you're right. Now, did the magazine represent Hugh Hefner, or was it a, a tool that he used to, to further his entire empire? Uh, and and the and the life that he built for himself, and the aura and the image that he created. Well, the magazine was certainly the mothership from which he then launched sorties into all other parts of the culture. Sort of like Oprah Winfrey used her 
daily television show as the kind of central identity, and then she went on to do the magazines and the radio and the, uh, the online stuff and all the other things uh, that she did. That magazine was certainly the identity of that uh, brand before we were even using that word uh, all that much. Uh, but then, of course, he did go on to have the chain of uh, 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 clubs where you'd go for uh, live entertainment, and he had a TV presence. He had mm-hmm. a TV show called Playboy After Dark in the well, it was in the '60s, I think, and maybe into the '70s. Um, uh, and he would do uh, uh, cameos on uh, uh, things right up to toward the end of his life. He did The Simpsons and Curb Your Enthusiasm and Sex and the City. I do think, though, he kind of outlived his... He represented a certain kind of urban cosmopolitan cool in the magazine and the clubs and all the rest of it. The smoking jacket, the pipe in one hand, the cocktails and all that kind of thing. Um he lived long enough, though, for that to become almost a parody. If somebody walked up to one of my students today in a smoking jacket <laughs> with a pipe uh, and a cocktail, their response would not be, oh, how cool this guy is, but their response would be to burst out laughing. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think we really saw that when he did The Girls Next Door, the reality TV show, which went from 2005 to 2010. And by that time, he was, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, far along um, uh, in age, and yet still, you know, playing this whole Hefner, uh, you know, sexy pajamas kind of thing. And I think in many ways, like so many reality TV shows, that had become more a punchline than it was his original brand. Without Hugh Hefner, does our society develop differently, significantly differently uh, from 1950 to 1980? I don't know. I mean, uh, everything would be a little different, I suppose, uh, but uh, I'm not sure in any really significant uh, uh, sorts of ways. Uh, The sexual revolution would have happened anyway without uh, uh, Hugh Hefner. Feminism and uh, 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 feminist response to pornography, all of that stuff would have... uh, uh, would have happened anyway. Um, I think maybe the birth control pill, which starts, what, about 1959, somewhere around there. I'm not sure when it was approved and developed and all that, but somewhere around the turn of that decade. Uh, I think that probably, in the end, had a more significant impact. But we don't want to understate Hefner. He did really kind of bring out that idea of lifestyle before we were using uh, that word. And it was a lifestyle very much based on luxury and good taste and consumerism and all of that kind of thing. And it's not like Hefter invented that in America. It was well established by that time. But he certainly continued to promote and, uh, um, and celebrate it. Bob, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk some about the fiction pieces that appeared in the magazine that became quite famous. And there's a, one of Hollywood's most famous directors, one of the most famous people in film, did he, or had his directorial debut uh, in a uh, f- from a from a Playboy magazine fiction piece that made it to the small screen, not the big screen, but the small uh, yes. screen, and it's it's a uh, it's a piece of culture and legend. We'll come right back with Professor Robert Thompson. Roy won't take no or no comment. Sitting down. This is the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. 
Emails to Roy at RoyGreenshow.com. Follow me on Twitter at RoyGreenshow. Next hour, Dr. Lynn Webster, past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the author of The Painful Truth. He'll join us from Salt Lake City in Utah. And Dr. Gaylord Wardell, anesthesiologist and pain specialist in Medicine Hat, Alberta. And uh, we'll talk about chronic pain patients. And these two doctors side with the patients who insist that their opioid medication really is the only thing that provides some quality of life. With me talking about uh, Hugh Hefner, who passed away at the age of 91 earlier in the week, Professor Robert Thompson, the director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at the University of Syracuse and the author of television's Second Golden Age from Hill Street Blues to ER. Uh, Bob, let's have a listen for a few seconds here to what Hugh Hefner had to say about his growing up years. I was raised in a very Puritan home, a prohibitionist home, a very repressive home, a home in which uh, there was not a lot, of, a lot of hugging and kissing. Uh, the Playboy philosophy is, makes a case for life as a celebration with a suggestion that there is more to life than simply a veil of tears, that life should be lived with a little style. Uh, and you can do that if you are wealthy or if you are working on relatively lesser means. I think it, more, it has to do with attitude on life. It, that reminds me, and I want to get to the fiction pieces in a second, but that reminds me of whenever I hear Hefner interviewed, I never had the chance to do that myself, but I, I was never quite sure what he was talking about. <laughs> you know, it was. <laughs> yeah, well, I have no problem with that idea that life shouldn't be just a veil of tears. I completely subscribe to that. Um, the jump between a, uh, a family that nobody hugs each other uh, uh, to a, uh, a life where you celebrate life and don't have a veil of tears. Um, by means of putting naked women in magazines for everybody to oogle at. That's the step I don't quite get. No, no, there was, there was something strange about his his way of speaking. I, I was never sure whether he was just trying to use words that were impressive but didn't quite connect or whether I just wasn't paying close attention. But the magazine did have a, some tremendous fiction pieces, and you and I talked the other day about one in particular – and the, the, the story was dual, and it was the story of a truck driver who tries to kill a traveling salesman who was driving a little nondescript uh, car. And I remember reading that. It was Valiant, yeah. I remember reading that. It was just an incredibly gripping story, and it turned out to be a film eventually for television. And who directed it? None other than Spielberg, Steven Spielberg. He directed a couple of TV episodes before, but that was the first film he ever directed. It was made for television. It was an ABC right. movie of the week, but it was his first uh, uh, film-length show. What about that particular film, that, that particular story? It became well, I have to say, a piece well, of pop I culture, didn't it? it? Yeah, it played in 19, November of 1971. Richard Matheson published the, the uh, story in April of 71. Mm-hmm. And the story goes that Spielberg's secretary, uh, and at that point in his career, I'm surprised he had a secretary, so I'm not sure how accurate this story is, but apparently she saw the story uh, and gave it to Spielberg. But the fact that it was released in November of 81, aired on ABC in November of 81, the Matheson story was in the April, uh, I'm sorry, 71. 
the Matheson story was in the April 71 issue of Playboy, which might have come out in late February or March. That meant that whole thing happened pretty quickly. But uh, I had never read the story, but I do remember I would have been about 11 years old um, when that ABC movie of the week played. And that was one of the most um, uh, compelling experiences I had ever had watching television. I remember the, the reading the story and being gripped by the story and then being so uh, keenly interested in the film when I found out about it. I was working the night that it showed on television, but then they replayed it about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And I just worked until midnight, but I stayed up to watch that film, and I'm not sorry that I did. And I asked you a question which is still circulating. Did we ever get to see the driver of the truck? And a lot of people think that it was one of the men who was sitting at the counter of the diner, but you say no. Well, there, there is a, the, the, truck, uh, uh, the truck and uh, uh, the Plymouth end up at this same gas station, um, and there's a diner. And uh, we, we see uh, the driver of the Plymouth, uh, uh, you know, looking around and trying to speculate which one of it is. He actually goes up and yells at one of them. Um, but as he's yelling at one of them, uh, the truck drives away. So it's clearly not that one. So I'd have to go back and look at it again. But I don't think it's ever revealed for sure who it actually is that is driving. We never see... Uh, a person, I think, leave the diner, go to the truck, and drive it away. Um, uh, you know, with uh, there, there's never a string of evidence uh, for that. No, I don't the, think the driver of the Valiant was Dennis Weaver, right? I was His thinking, was I was thinking Man. as well earlier today. This that would be the kind of film where if somebody wanted to today, they could turn it into a really great movie for the big screen. They could, but, you know, I think one of the things, that's an interesting point, because you could remake that now with a huge budget, and you could do extraordinary things with the truck and everything, but I think the very fact that this was a young director, his first movie, um, uh, it was done on a low budget. ABC was churning out uh, uh, the Tuesday movie of the week and the uh, Thursday movie of the week, and then they added a Wednesday, so they were really churning these things out. And I think it part of it was that it was low budget that made it so compelling. I mean, this thing was just the almost the entire movie were you know were people out in the middle of nowhere in two vehicles, and it required a really brilliant director to make that. As uh, uh, I, I mean, I, I remember I was on the seat of uh, my pants when I was watching, <laughs> or the edge of the chair. I should. Yeah. Say. yeah. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. The uh, 91st year, um, and that's when Hugh Hefner died, at age 91 just a few days ago. Quite a legacy, and I look forward to speaking with you again. It's always so much fun to talk to you, Ray. All the best. Dr. Robert Thompson from the University of Syracuse, pop culture expert, the director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture. We're back in a minute.